I run for the crown, I race for the prize, I press toward the upward call of God. I run for the crown, I race for the prize, I press toward the upward call of God. I fight with all my might to keep on living for the Christ. I know there is a glorious end in sight. The crown of life, the crown of victory I shall wear. So I sing the song of triumph till I'm there. I run for the crown, I race for the prize, I press toward the upward call of God. I run for the crown, I race for the prize, I press toward the upward call of God. I fight with all my might to keep on living for the Christ. I know there is a glorious end inside. When I say the word paradise, I want you to start thinking about just the first things that come to your mind. Because depending on who you are, it might depend on what you think of whenever you think of the word paradise. Let's go through some of these things that people might think of. Perhaps one of the first images that comes to people's mind is some type of a beach setting. Uh, you know, wonderful kind of just the, the waters, you see the ocean, maybe there's a boat involved or a palm tree or something like that. And it's just, you know, a nice relaxing occasion. That to many people is paradise. Maybe you're a little bit different than that though. Perhaps your paradise thought would be like maybe kind of a woods type setting, maybe uh, going hiking or some type of outdoors thing, maybe a cabin in, in the woods, you know, something like that, some type of very peaceful outdoors to hear the crickets in the background, things like that, maybe going out on the lake, something to that effect. And that, in many people's minds, that could be paradise. Or maybe you might think of a king who all of his needs are met instantly. You know, you might even kind of think about the uh, the king just kind of lounging around and then having the grapes being fed to him or something like that. Yet, whenever we think of the word paradise, we likely do not think of this. Jesus on the cross between two thieves. But yet, this is exactly what we see with the king of kings, that he was raised up not on a throne, and he was not praised as the rightful king of all creation that he was and is, but he was raised up on a cross. And he was raised up on a cross, and he was crucified between two thieves. Two thieves that, from all indication, they rightfully deserved what they got, but Jesus himself did not deserve it. So, we oftentimes don't think of this image when we think of paradise. However, this is one of only three times in all of the New Testament that the word paradise is actually used. Let's take a look at this passage here from Luke chapter 23. We're going to back up just a little bit, a few verses before the, uh, the actual verse that it's used in. So we're going to look at, at uh, Luke chapter 23, verses 32, and we're going to make our way down to verse uh, 43. Uh, but here in verse 32, this is, we're jumping into this story about where Jesus has already been arrested. He was uh, wrongfully accused. 
and they they said that they wanted to crucify him. They have decided to go ahead and crucify him. Uh, this is kind of this this mob idea as to what they are are just going to to wrongfully arrest him and then wrongfully put him to death. And he is going through this whole uh, process, and then we get to this this final time whenever. He is being crucified, and this is the picture that unfolds. Luke 23, beginning in verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with Jesus to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. So here we see in this image, one for which I'm not going to take the time right now. Perhaps in the future I will have a sermon on kind of how Jesus was wrongfully accused and how he was how he was crucified, how he was put to death and really what that means because this right here, this story, it can look very odd if you don't if you're not familiar with what Jesus went through and that Jesus was actually enduring these things because of our sin. It's because of your sin, it's because of my sin that Jesus Christ endured these things. He was a sacrifice in our place. We are the ones that deserve this type of punishment. We are the ones who deserve really nothing good but yet Jesus took on what we deserved and he took that to the cross and we see this image everybody's making fun of him they've already been making fun of him up to this point but they're continuing to make fun of him I mean what type of a person is it who will mock somebody still while they are hanging on the cross that's what we see are the ones who are surrounding Jesus but this goes on and there's a little bit more here Verses 38 through 43 now. There was a written notice above him, which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals, one of the criminals who hung there, hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And if you just keep reading a few verses later, you will find out that Jesus, he gives up his his last breath and he he does die. Uh, And then we we can definitely assume that the the thief on the cross, he also uh, died that very same day as well. But as you look at this, we see that you know, he was given this sign that said, King of the Jews. People were still kind of mocking him. They're saying, look, if you're the Messiah, if you are this king, why don't you save yourself? And even the criminal, one of the criminals said, why don't you save yourself and us? That's what that one criminal was. But he was hurling insults at him. Verse 39 makes this very plain. But, you know, the other gospels don't tell us this part. And I'm so thankful that Luke does. And I, I kind of wish that we knew a little bit more about this one criminal. Because, okay, the one that is making fun of him, uh, I mean, we get that from all the other Gospels. We see, okay, everybody's making fun of him. Everybody is is just turning their back on him. But yet, in verse 40, we see that there is this one criminal who actually rebuked 
that criminal who'd been hurling insults at him, who'd been making fun of him. And he said to him a few very interesting things. He started off, don't you fear God? That implies that at least this one criminal did fear God. And then he also says that they're under the same sentence. You know, they're all going to die. All three of them know that. I mean, there's really no way out of it at this point. Now, I mean, obviously we know that God could, of course, miraculously save them. But real, like, normally speaking, you know, under all type of realistic expectations, they're all going to die. They are all expected to die. And so they all have the same sentence. In verse 41, he recognizes they're being punished justly. They're getting what their deeds deserve. But he notices something different about Jesus. Now, I don't know how he knows this about Jesus, but he says Jesus has done nothing wrong. So he knew at least enough about Jesus to know Jesus was in the, the wrong place right there. He did not deserve this type of death. And then he looks to Jesus. And you know he knows something about this. Because in verse 42, he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, what great faith does this criminal have to have? I don't know exactly what he did to get there. I mean, he seems to think that he was punished justly because of his own deeds. Maybe he turned around at this point. But whatever the case, we see this wonderful statement of faith that he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, this, this criminal... Uh, he's expecting to die. Uh, he's expecting Jesus to die. He's expecting the other criminal to die. So how is Jesus going to come into his kingdom? I don't know how this guy is the one who realizes what's going on, but this guy gets a glimpse into what Jesus, the, the type of power that Jesus has, the type of kingdom that Jesus is all about. Because while he's dying on the cross with just moments to live, he is still acting out in this faith. And he's asking Jesus to remember him whenever he comes into his kingdom. But then notice how Jesus responds. We see this passage right here that he responds in verse 43. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Wow. Now, I mean, each one of these statements, it's so powerful just in and of itself. I mean, think about this. When you, when you look through these verses in verse 43, notice what Jesus says. He says, truly I tell you, you. Who is he talking to? He's talking to this criminal. But yet this criminal has acted out in great faith by saying, when you come into your kingdom, he knows that Jesus still has a plan. We also see that Jesus still going in with this verse 43. He says, truly I tell you today. See, Jesus had a plan. He most certainly has a plan. He's revealing his plan. And I don't know if the criminal understood how important this day, this today was. But Jesus understood how important today was. That day. That day was the day that Jesus was going to deal with our sin. He was going to be buried that day. And he was going to rise up on the third day. And conquering his own death. But he says here to this criminal, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. You will be with me. That's important, to be with Jesus. But then he says, in paradise. Isn't that so interesting that he says the word paradise? Now, there's a lot of neat things about the word paradise. If you want to kind of uh, go uh, back to it, even though the, the word paradise isn't actually used um, in the 
at least not the same type of word, uh, going back to the book of, of Genesis. Whenever it's speaking about the Garden of Eden and how God originally had created that, um, that word, whenever it was translated into the Greek uh, Old Testament, the Septuagint, it was translated with the same word for paradise right here. So kind of that, that Garden of Eden, that, that garden that God created, the Garden of God, that wonderful, perfect place that God created for humans to live. Jesus is referencing that place again. What happened to that place? Well, you know, if you follow the story, you know that we as humans, we, we gave up that place and we were exiled from that place. But there's also a promise that we can return to God and that we can be with him once again. Now, all of this is accomplished through what Jesus does. And yes, I know that, you know, Luke 23 gets into all these things and I wanna just take a, a little bit of a moment to uh, look at one of my favorite passages that speaks about um, everything that Jesus did for us on the cross. And that is from the book of Philippians. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, we see just what Jesus was willing to do to help us, to, to be with us, and to lift us up. We're told here in Philippians 2, beginning verse 5, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Pay close attention now. Verse 7, Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's what Jesus did for us. He humbled himself. He was obedient to death, even death on the cross. And because of those things, verse 9, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is a wonderful summary statement about just how powerful that moment on the cross, how powerful of a, of a humble death, humble obedience that Jesus gave for us on the cross. Because of those things, because of, of his service, he was exalted by God. He has given this name that is above every name. And every knee will bow, every tongue will confess or acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to glorify God the Father. That's what Philippians 2 is stating right here. This is a summary of what Jesus did uh, on the cross and the power of that moment. And on that cross, he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. That word paradise is very interesting because there's only a couple other times in the New Testament where it appears. We see it appears three times in the New Testament. One of those was on the cross and he was speaking to, a, uh, to one of the criminals. The next time we see 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we notice specifically in verse 4, that's where paradise appears. But listen to what Paul is stating right here. He says, verses 2 through 4, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Where it, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. But God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things. Things that no one is permitted to tell. Now, I kind of wish we got a little bit more information about this. However, this is as far as we go right here. This is as far as we are told about this moment 
and what was happening here. This paradise is connected with this third heaven. And, and then there's this statement about this, um, this kind of visionary moment in which Paul knows of this guy, likely speaking of himself, who was caught up to paradise. And he was not able to even to explain it. It's inexpressible. You can't explain it to somebody. And he's not permitted to tell the things. I mean, would we be able to understand it anyways? It seems that we wouldn't be. You know, the Apostle John, whenever he speaks um, about some of the visions that he experienced, uh, he kind of spoke of some of that in in uh, his own um, times. That, yes, his job was to write down the whole book of Revelation was about those things that he saw. But, you know, sometimes he was told to not write some things. Uh, and then some things he was like, well, it's kind of like this or it's like that. But it, it's really hard for us to understand many of these things. Well, this paradise, I think in, in many ways we can get a glimpse if we go back to the book of Genesis. And if we start to see about how great of a, of a world God created at the beginning. Now, I think there's still some things that we probably don't even understand that's, that's mentioned in the book of Genesis, but it sounds wonderful. And I believe that this paradise that is being described here in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and I believe that paradise that was recorded in Luke 23 are just as wonderful. Actually, I would say more wonderful than that original paradise that God created. And this is what God has planned for those people who are victorious. At least that's the language he uses the third time that we see the word paradise in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, speaking to one of the seven churches, he says, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So he says that they are to be victorious. And he also tells them that he's going to give them the right to the tree of life. See how he's going back to some of those statements in the book of Genesis? talking about this paradise of God, this garden of God, this wonderful place of God. And I believe that whatever comes to your mind whenever you think of the word paradise, whether it's a beach or woods or anything like that, I believe that those who are faithful to God will experience exactly the type of paradise that is wonderful, that is great. And it's going to be better than anything that we could ask or anything that we could even imagine. Because this is what God is doing. This is part of the story of God. And as we look at this story of God, it's so interesting that the first um, you know, book of the Bible, the, the opening pages of this story, it starts off in the beginning. And you know, kind of, if you, if you look at the end of Revelation, not the very, very end, but pretty close to the end, there is a story, at least the, the end of the story that happens. And that happens in Revelation 22, which is the last chapter, and we're going to turn there. The word paradise is not used, but I think you'll understand why we're looking at it because it's so closely connected to the beginning of the story as well. Revelation 22 verses 1 through 5. This is kind of how the story of the Bible ends. It begins in the beginning and God creates everything. Now we see in Revelation 22 verse 1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the street, sorry, of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. 
and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Isn't that a wonderful end to the story? It begins in the beginning, and it ends, and they will reign forever and ever. That's what God wanted from the beginning. Whenever you go back to reading about that original garden that he created, and you can read, by the way, you can read in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 especially, you get it still a little bit in, in chapter 3. You get that, that garden and what God wanted and how he wanted to be with Adam and Eve and how much he loved them. And now we see that finally in the end, uh, God does get what he desires. Now, it was a very windy path to get there and it had to have Jesus dying on the cross so that we could have forgiveness of our sins and this curse would be taken away. That death itself would be taken away. That all these great things would come to us through that sacrifice that Jesus was willing to give on our behalf. And because of that, the end of the story can say, and they will reign forever and ever. That is a choice that you and I have. We can choose to live forever in the paradise of God. This choice is ours and the decision must be made now. Will we choose to live for Jesus every single day of our life and follow his way in all that we do? When the rivers run, when shines the sun, we can clearly see the masterpiece of God. When the moonlight glows and blooms a rose, there can be no doubt it was God who made it all. When the rivers run, Oceans roar, when the oceans roar.